After Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land he had been allocated at Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal in the images of Ashtoreth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people, who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judges died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshiping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He said, Because these people have violated my covenant, which I made with their ancestors, and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. I think it's working, right? Okay, great. Um, Good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad you could join us this morning. And this morning we begin an eight-week-long sermon series on Judges titled, Imperfect, in parentheses, Savior. I titled our series um, this because on the surface, the judges you and I will meet seem very perfect leaders. The God uses to rescue, to save, to be a savior for the troubled Israelites, as we will see. But this is not a story with all these heroes that come to the rescue. Rather, writer of the judges show us not only Uh, the rescuing act of God in their life, but also all their imperfections, all their failures, 
and these seemingly perfect saviors of Israelites will show, in fact, they're flawed. Flawed at best. But why the parentheses about around imperfect? Because God uses them in those moments to bring about who he is and ultimately point us towards our need for the perfect Savior that is to come. And as we begin today's uh, series, the title is After the Death of Joshua in Judges chapter 1. And we read a portion of chapter 2, but we're going to cover chapter 1 and 2 as the writer uh, sets the stage for us for the rest of the series as we delve into Judges. One of the highlights of Christ Central Church membership process that I love, I absolutely adore, and I think a lot of us that join Christ Central through this process love and talk about is the presentation of the gospel. And the question we often ask anybody who comes to this class is, tell me how you are doing and how would you describe Christian life for you or how is your experience with Jesus as your Savior is like? And the answers typically vary based upon the life circumstances the one person is in, but many, if not all, would say, well, it's a bit of like a roller coaster ride. There's some days I am so excited about Jesus, and on other days I can't even not find my Bible, right? Some days I'm so excited to go on missions and do all this for the Lord, but sometimes I feel like God is so far away from me, and I begin to doubt whether to know whether God is real or not. That's our experiences at times, roller coaster of emotions of being close to the Lord, where I want to be obedient to the Lord, but sometimes I feel like I'm so far away from the Lord, walking away from the Lord. And that's when we turn to them and say, welcome to the club, right? Welcome to the club. Because if we are truly honest with ourselves, some of us may wonder, how come that so-and-so looks so committed and convicted in the gospel? How can I get myself to believe and stop backsliding like I do? Do I really believe the stuff that I've been taught all along in my Christian walk all my life? Or is this something I just go along with to get by? And as for the youth students that are sitting here, isn't that what you really want to know too in your heart? Hey parents, hey teachers, do you really mean what you say you mean? Are any of all this stuff real anyways? Is it truly that beautiful enough to raise your hands in worship? Is it really that worth it? Well, if that's where you are, and I think all of us, many of us, would say this is where we are, if we're really honest with ourselves, Book of Judges is for us, for me, for all of us. After all, spend a little bit of time getting to know Christ Central Lights, and you will understand that many of us are in this boat. Come to the red chairs and talk to people, and you realize the stories upon stories are the roller coaster ride of emotions, experiences with our Lord, more so than the customary, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. And you? You'll find out that many of us wrestle in this, whether you're a seasoned Christian or not, young or older. Doesn't matter. We experience this roller coaster ride in the Christian life. So, with that in mind, we turn to Judges chapter 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, what do we find? Where are the Israelites' hearts at this point? And what does God say to that in the midst of all that? And first thing we find is the history of forgetfulness. History of forgetfulness. A typical day in Kim household goes something like this. 
As I'm rushing out the door, try to make to my next appointment, my lovely wife, Lynn, would call out and say, did you get milk for Seth? And of course I say, oops, I forgot. And that's my nickname for her, Oif, as they say. Oops, I forgot. Happens way too often. I got a history of forgetfulness. History of forgetfulness is what defines me in many ways, but also history of forgetfulness is what defines Israelites in Judges chapter 1 and 2. But it's more so than milk, they forget often. On the heels of death of Joshua, Israelites are wondering what to do next. The first time in their history, there's not a clear leader they're supposed to follow. No Moses, no Aaron, no Joshua. So what do they do? They actually do the right thing at first, don't they? They ask God. In Judges chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, we'll be up here. Uh, verse 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, which tribe should go first and attack the Canaanites? And God graciously answers, answers them, perhaps foreshadowing their future. God designates a tribe, another way to say a family, and says, family of Judah must go first and fight. So Judah, Judges chapter 1 verse 2 says, the Lord answers Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. And for the rest of chapter 1, we see a short history report of what happened, how the conquest went after Joshua. What were the victories and failures? As if to tell the readers and the listeners not only what happened, but why those things happened. And the results were mixed bag, right? Men of Judah succeeded in Bezek, Jerusalem, Negev, Devir, Jepheth, Hormah, Gaza, and all those cities. The family of Joseph also does the same in Bethel. And you're like, that's right, we got this. But we also hear failure stories. We're told that Judah couldn't finish the job. The family of Benjamin can't drive out the Jebusites. Manasseh fails. Ephraim does the same. Jebelun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan all do not finish the job. And let me clarify one point before we move on, because I think it's important for us to address this for us today. Because many of us are thinking, when we read stories of judges, when one nation takes over another nation and drives them out, we get really uncomfortable with it, right? We often think about this conquest in the Old Testament. It sounds like religious genocide, crusade against Canaanites where Israelites are murdering innocent people living peacefully in their own land in the name of some promise God gives them, an outsider trying to take their land and push them out, and we get uncomfortable with that. And the question is, is that what's really happening here? Is judges a justification of religious fanaticism? Well, let's start with what Adani Zedek, one of the conquered Canaanite king of Bezek, says in chapter verse. Uh, First chapter of Judges, chapter, uh, verse 7. Using his own words of what's happening, this is what he says. Adani Bezik says, I once had 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off, eating scraps from under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They took him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And you know what happens to him? His fingers, his toes get cut off. He's saying... He knows he's getting what he deserves because that's what he's been doing all his life. Finally, it is cut off to them. Furthermore, God tells the Israelites back, even before Israelites start this conquest, he tells them this in desert in Deuteronomy chapter 9. After the Lord your God has done this for you, don't say in your hearts, Israelites, the Lord has given us this land because we are such good people, in other translations, because of my righteousness. 
No, it is because of the wickedness of the other nations that he is pushing them out of your way. It is not because you are so good or have such integrity that you are about to occupy their land. The Lord your God will drive these nations out ahead of you only because of their wickedness. And to fulfill the oath he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, Israel in the Old Testament times is used by God to usher in the judgment and justice. Israel is a special case where God uses to usher in the judgment of the Canaanites. And the question for us is that do we live in this era? We don't, right? We don't live in the time of the Old Testament. We live in time of Jesus' death and resurrection. And in the New Testament time, Jesus comes to usher in the era of mercy and love to the point where he dies on the cross, and the method is not rod of, right, rod of justice by military strength, but by sacrificial love, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, and in it, it is not a nation that he's after, but the hearts of people that he's after. And as we wait for Jesus to ultimately come back and usher in his divine justice, that's the era that you and I are called to live in. So one more side note on that. That means any notion tying or making any religious agenda a part of overtaking, killing, suppressing others is anti-Jesus in every conceivable way. The kingdom that belongs to God and God alone, and as you attach that to any political system, agenda, ideology, no matter how noble it may sound, no matter how good it makes you feel, kingdom of God, church, does not belong to any human cause or even the most noblest crusade of justice. Church, there's no biblical ground on that. Come on, church, we're Christians, right? We live by Christ's love, not false sense of nationalism. Amen? Back to the text. So here is what the verdict of this mixed bag result is in God's eyes in chapter 2. Angel of the Lord went off to Gilgal to Bochim and said to Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land. I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you for your part, Israel. You were not to make any covenant with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you dis disobeyed my commands. Why? Did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns on your side, and their gods will be constant temptation for you. And some of you may be thinking, God, that's really harsh, right? They tried. They tried so hard, right? Did you hear what they did? The task was way harder than they were called to do, it looks like. Look at them. Some of them had chariots of iron. Modern, their version of tanks. And Israelites, a bunch of inexperienced foot soldiers. Have you seen this? We see this, right? And some of the resistance were so fierce. Well, they could not drive them out. They did their, best, their next best thing, meaning they got in with them, they pressed them, and they got a free labor out of it, right? By enslaving them and oppressing them. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough that I am owning this land and you may also turn around to say, God, what you told me to do today is impossible for me. How can I do this? 
I can overcome these enemies in my life. I can overcome these obstacles, these temptations. They're too much. They're way too strong. It's impossible. I cannot do it. And I think here is where we must see the difference between I can't, I, and I want. The difference between I cannot versus I will not. Right? Why does God start by saying, I brought you out of Egypt in his verdict? Do you know why he says that? Because God is asking Israelites, did you forget what I did? Did you forget that I fought against you, against the mighty superpower of Egypt at a time? Did you forget that you merely marched against this mighty fortress of Jericho and they fell as you shouted at them? Do you forget that you had no business as a former enslaved to win any war? Did you forget that I fought for you? I fed you. I gave you water. I protected you. I chose you. I became your God. Do you not remember this? Did you forget? Did you forget, O oh Israel, who your God is? Israel demonstrated their forgetfulness of who God is. And the question for us is the same. Do you forget who God is in your life? And as a result of that, do you often say, I cannot, God. I cannot. When you really mean, I will not, God. I will not. Are there places in your heart where you tell God, I can't. But what you really mean, I won't. Perhaps it is in workplace, in your job you have, and you say, well, God, I can't be honest in this line of work to make it work. Or rather, it is more, I won't do it, God. No way I'm going to make that kind of sacrifice. Perhaps it is an area of sexual temptations or relationships. Do you often say, God, I can't help it. It is impossible temptation. I just can't help but to fall into it. Or is it, I don't want to do it. I won't do it, God. It won't fulfill my own desires. My wants and longings greater than that. Perhaps it's in relationships where you say, I can't forgive this. I can't forgive him or her. Or is it, oh, no, 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 that person crossed the line. I won't do it. This is unacceptable for my own health. I'm bitter, and I want my justice done my way. The list goes on and on. Are you really telling God of the universe, he can't change you? He can't do it? As if he doesn't have the power to overcome as if he who created the heavens and the earth, who knows you inside out, to tell him that you can't do it, even though you call me to do it? Did you really forget his promise that one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion? Did you really forget that who is called according to his purpose, God will do it? Did you really forget that he feeds the birds of the air, the flowers of the field, but you are more valuable in the eyes of God? Did you really forget that he's promised that he will be back soon and so live in light of that promise? Church, did you really forget his promise that nothing can separate you from the love of God? Nothing, period. Church, did you forget the cross? The Easter was just days away. Did you forget his love for you? The length, the depth he went to rescue you, to save you, to forgive you, to transform you by the power of the Spirit of God that indwells 
within you. All saints of God, did you forget your own testimony? Your first love. Where have you been? Oh, church, question is, how are you ordering your life today? Are there places of unconquered areas in your heart where you stake and say, I want God? Not here. Not here. Church, there are two ways where you and I could go about in living for the Lord. One way is half-hearted way, where you pick and choose what you want. Pick and choose when you want to come. Or pick and choose when you want to obey. Well, God, I want to love the Lord. Save me, send me. And then you say, no, not there. Not there. No, uh Anywhere but there. Or you could say, God, all of my life, every piece of my heart, all this I surrender. Question is, what kind of follower of Christ are you? My family had a chance to go to New York City for spring break. And one of the things that we did was to climb over this 20, 20 stairs to go up to the top of Statue of Liberty toward Crown. Beautiful, majestic view, right? And it's nerve-wracking. Tiny, tiny stairwells to go to the top. They wisely tell the parents to put the child in the middle. And I was like, why? And I realized, soon realized why. Because as the child goes up, he can gently be urged by the one in the front to keep going. And the one in the back, that if you fall, I got you. So my son did great. Why? Because he had full confidence that his daddy and his mommy got him, right? He took both steps in confidence, one at a time, knowing that he's covered. Even if he falls, there's someone to catch him, and he'll be led along the way. I, on the other hand, was a wreck, <laughs> right? Man with many fears, especially fear of heights, wondering why is this happening in my life? I'm going to die. My legs were wobbly. I didn't have my mommy. I had by myself, looking up, realizing I might die today. This is it. Tell him I love him. Thinking, I got to make it on my own. Church, that's the difference in how we approach the Lord, isn't it? Do you, do you in confidence, approach knowing he's got all of your life covered in his hands? Front and the back success and failures in your doubts and questions? Or are you on your own and you hold tightly onto the life and say, I don't want to, I can't. But you're really saying, God, I will not. It's all up to me. I won't do it. Forgetting who God is and also forgetting who you're meant to be. As soon as Israelites heard the verdict of the angel of the Lord telling them that they have failed, this is what they do in verse 4. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, people wept loudly. That's a great start. Lament of your sin is a good place to start. But you know what's better than that? Repentance. Turning away from your sin. Surrendering, saying, there, these are areas of my life, God, that say, I won't do it. God, help me to overcome. Help me to overcome. Seek the Lord, turn to him, and send out armies of faith into the unconquered territories of your heart, knowing that he goes with you. He can and will overcome. And may this good news of the gospel free you from the bondage of sin and shackles of idolatry. And our hope is not in our history of forgetfulness, but 
Our hope is in his story of remembrance of God's promise in our lives. And that's where the lines of the judges come in in chapter 2 and on. Sorry. When we get to chapter 2, we see the history of God's story, history of remembrance. Another typical story of the Kim household goes like this. As I tell my lovely wife, oops, I forgot again. The response is, I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> typical of you. So I remembered. I bought milk for him already. So I'm reminded whom I married, who I need. Most often than not, it is her history of remembrance that sustains my family. When we get to chapter 2, we see the gloom circumstances for Israelites as a result of their failure. Verse 6, what we read says, After Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribe left to take possession of the land allotted to them. Then the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived them, those who had seen all the great things the Lord God had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land he had been allocated at Timnah Serah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Church, did you catch that? I think we, I heard a collective gasp when uh, Angel was reading this too. All it took was one generation. One generation. And the question is, did that new generation had no knowledge of who God was? No, I think they did. Absolutely. As good Israelites, they were told to their, tell their stories time and time again. Their parents, I'm sure, practiced Deuteronomy chapter 6, taught their children what God did. I'm sure of that. But what is verse 10 saying? Verse 10 is saying the new generation only knew about God, but did not know God, as it says in other translations. They did not know, as in they did not acknowledge who God was. Worse yet, they did not worship the Lord with all of their hearts to follow God. It only took one generation to fall away. And parents, well, not only parents, because we take the vow to raise this generation together, right? The generation of church, so all of us. This is a stern warning for all of us that are sitting here today. We are faced with the reality that it only takes one generation to forget. So what does that mean for us? Should we go out and build more Christian schools? Enforce Christian education curriculum? Should we focus on building better youth programs, children's church? Should we put more fences around things that children can do and not do? Catechize them? Should we do more Bible reading? Bible mem uh, scripture memorization? Do we do all that? Well, one could argue that some of those are really important for us. But what I believe this text is showing is much more than that. I believe our calling, not only parents here, as we look out to the vows that we took together during our sacraments vow of covenant baptism, our calling is not only to tell other people, or tell the next generation about who God is, but teach them about God, but actually show them with our lives. Remembering idolatry Israelites falls into in Judges is not that Israelites suddenly forget who Yahweh, the covenant God who brought them out of Egypt, was. Yahweh is worshipped by the Israelites, but not exclusively. He is worshipped alongside idols like Baal and Ashtoreth. Church, 
You are here this Sunday, worshiping the Lord. But who are the other gods in your life? The idols of comfort, idols of money, idols of power, even your children's success. Are there other idols alongside one true God? And if you're youth students sitting here, I would venture to think if asked honestly, you ask for the same. Don't just tell me what to do. Don't just teach me all this knowledge. Show me, church. Show me. And this not only applies to teenagers, but to those who have been hurt by the church. Those who wonder, does church really care about the world? Does church really care about the oppressed people? Do church really care about people that look like me? Right? Don't just teach me and tell me about these things, but show me the beauty of the gospel. They would all say, oh, you who say Jesus is your Savior, your God, please not only tell me what's up, but show me what's up. Right? Show me. Don't just tell me of the beauty of Christ, but show me how you value that beauty so much and how you live in light of that freedom. Don't just tell me that God is important, but show me how he is so important in your life by how you prioritize spending time with your God. Show me by how you order your life to tell me that God is more important than where I'm going to go to college. Show me how God is so much more important than the comforts of my bed, on my couch, at home. Show me how much God is more valued to build the kingdom of heaven than to build a nice vacation home in the coast. Show me by the choices that you make, things you stand for, how we schedule our weeks, that God is prioritized, not other things. Church, that's discipleship. As Michelle Reyes reminded us in Color Courageous Discipleship, discipleship really is evident in how and where you spend money and how and where you spend your time. Another word, discipleship is all about who you worship. God exclusively, or you got other idols in your life that you tend to bow down, and they see it. Next generation clearly sees it. Outside of the church sees it clearly than we do at times. Who are you worshiping, church? So what does God do for this generation? What would you do? What would God of the universe who brought them out of Egypt, God who stands for justice and righteousness, what would God do? Well, God has to punish, right? After all, God punished Canaanites for evil. This is who God is. God of justice and righteousness. God cannot stand sin. Remember holiness of God. This is what God does. Furthermore, God warns them about this. God tells them, I'm a jealous God, not in a jealous way of you and our thinking in a relationship, but God is jealous for our good and for his glory. And God warns them he's going to do this. In verse 
14 and 15, he says, He turned every, uh, this is what God said God would do. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord, notice it's not the Canaanites. It's not the idols. It's not the temptations that fought against them. It was the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. God has to punish your sin. God has to point out your sin and deal with it. God is God of justice, church. But we also know that God is God of compassion and love, don't we? This God of justice also loves us, the Bible tells us. This is God who also promised Israelites that he will give them this land. This is God who promised Abraham, Moses, that I will be their God and they will be my people. So what does God do? God sends them judges to rescue them, to save them. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges over Israel, he was with the judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout judges' lifetime. But the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by depression and suffering. And this cycle repeats again and again and again. Israel disobeys. God hands them over to their enemies. They cry out in mercy. God remembers his promise. In his story of remembrance, he sends the judges after judges after judges to remind them who God is. And they fail again and again and again. And these are the stories that we're going to encounter. Imperfect saviors. Imperfect saviors who cannot fully complete the mission to rescue Israelites once and for all. After all, they die. Not only because they only die, but we also see they got flaws on their own too. They're imperfect at best. So the question is, what is the Israelites' true hope? Where is my hope, your hope, this generation and the next generation's hope? Because you and I both know we all fall into this as much as we say we try not to. As I stated in the beginning, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster ride of emotions all the time. So you and I, as much as we try our best, are going to struggle. And we often look for the next bright leader to lead us and guide us. We also know they fall or they die too. So we need someone that won't die. We need someone that's eternal. We need someone that's sinless, that doesn't have his own agenda on his heart, but God's agenda on his heart. We need someone to pay for my sin, to take all my garbage upon his shoulders. And who is that? God will send his son, perfect savior. He makes him sin who was sinless, and he takes upon his shoulders the hope not only of this generation, but the future generation, and gives us hope that is everlasting. This is the hope for you, me, the youth, children, this generation and next, past, 
present and the future, hope that is everlasting because God's Son, the perfect Savior, the perfect judge will come to die on the cross for our sin and rise again and will give us new heart so we can be glorious with Him on that day He returns. And that's the hope. And that's what we look forward to. Church, may you remember that gospel. That's your story. That's why you got to hold on to. As we conclude the gospel section in the membership cohort, we remind our members this. Yes, perhaps the roller coaster of ride of emotions is your experience. But the gospel reality is this. When Jesus came and died for us on the cross, that's when our lives are renewed and begin again, as we say in church, right? Rebirth happens. And our growth and how you become more and more like Christ is not, oh, I don't sin here anymore. Oh, I conquer all my territories of my heart. I'm perfectly sinless. That's not how you grow. Growth happens when you acknowledge, wow, I can't. Look at all these areas of my life where I stake the claim saying I can't, but I'm really saying I want. And you compare that to the holiness of God, how God is so holy and mighty who says I can do all things. The growth happens when you say I need him. How do I get there? Only Jesus will get you there. And gospel growth means you absolutely in full surrender say, my Lord, my God, change me. I surrender. Church, that's the gospel. That's what you hold on to. That's your story. Let me say one more thing. I want to thank the pastoral search team for the update. They faithfully serve the church. And you know, if they do this right, right, if they get this right, right, you know what's going to happen? Whether it's this candidate or not, they're going to give us perfect, imperfect pastor. Do you know that? Man, he's going to be a one flawed man. He's going to have so many blind spots. You're like, really him? Right? He's going to have scars in his own life, as I told the pastor system before. Lots of failures. The USC history, not of success. Don't be fooled by the history of successes because we could package that nicely. It's actually history of failures we got. He's also going to make lots of mistakes, hurt a lot of people in the process. He will definitely not fit any of your or my list of who the pastor at Christ Central is going to be. If they do this right, he's gonna give, they're going to give us imperfect pastor at best. But this is also where I want to remind you of who you are, Christ Central Church. You're not the one who is enamored with the gifts and the promise of the new pastor. You're not going to be swept under by these grand visions and hopes for the future, the brightness that is to come. Rather, what you will do is that you'll embrace them just as he is and love him. Rather than use him to be your pastor, expand them for your services, but you'll be patient with them. Allow him to be who God wants him to be, and you will love him. And you will say, you are imperfect pastor, but just perfect for us. And that's what you have done for me. And that's what you have done for a number of years for Pastor Howard, Pastor Omari, and many others before. And I tell many in your congregation, I make lots of mistakes, even outside of our church. I am expert at hurting a lot of people. I'm broken 
Even in my own church, Christ Central, I don't feel comfortable at all. Sometimes I walk in wondering, what am I doing here? I also get hurt by many of you, things that you say. But you know what doesn't change? It's the fact that I love you. And I'm affirmed here. I'm imperfect. But what I tell people is, I'm allowed to be who God made to be in this church. You do not merely use me, but care for me and love me. Allow me to point you to a perfect Savior. That's who you are. Remember who you are. Remember your call as a church. And that's what excites me about the next pastor. Someone that we could all grow to love God with. Imperfect pastor who will point us to the perfect Savior. Let's pray. Let's pray. Will you, church? Pray for that. Pray for those areas of your heart where God is pointing out and saying, these are areas you need to surrender. I'm not saying you got to do it on your own. Do you not know who I am? I have overcome the world. Pray, will you? Teenagers in the room, will you pray too? Ask God to show you. God may send people your way. Ask them to show you their love for the Lord. And grow with them. Imperfect. But hope, pray that they will point you to the perfect Savior. Let's pray, will you, before we go into time of Lord's Supper. Pray in your heart. Father, that's our prayer as we come to the Lord's table. We have places in our lives that we all often hold on to. Places in our hearts that we want. We won't let you take hold of places where we say, I can't, but we're really telling you, I, I want, Lord. Places in our hearts that um, they often look for next perfect thing to latch our life on, hope for the best, thinking they will deliver. But Lord, the answer is often found in this old book of the Bible. The old rugged cross that reminds us our perfect Savior has already completed his work. Father, may we rest in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.